Hello and welcome to the Permaculture Podcast with Scott Mann, a listener-supported program. My guest for this episode is the rewilder Peter Michael Bauer from Portland, Oregon, who is also a trained permaculture practitioner who studied under Toby Hemingway. Peter is the executive director of Rewild Portland, an environmental education nonprofit that uses hands-on workshops and classes to teach earth-based arts, skills, and technologies. He is also a regular contributor to Rewild.com and the Rewild.com Facebook group, which is where I first became familiar with his work, though we do share some colleagues and friends in common. During this conversation, we talk about permaculture as a tool for rewilding, examine the impact of government and empire on our ability to take care of the earth and ourselves, discuss the meaning of civilization in the context of earth repair, rewilding, and permaculture, and also look at our individual roles in creating useful change. After you listen to this interview, join me afterwards for some thoughts and updates. Here is Peter Michael Bauer. Then, Peter, if you're ready, could you give us a bit of your biography and background, how you came to do what you're doing, and then we can lead into the conversation about rewilding. Um, my name is Peter Michael Bauer, born and raised in Portland, Oregon. I, When I was about 16 years old, I read a bunch of books on uh, sustainability and ancestral lifeways, and I ended up um, dropping out of high school and running away from home to go to a school, a survival school in New Jersey. And uh, then I went up to Wilderness Awareness School when I returned from that, which is up in Washington. And ever since then, that was uh, in 1998, ever since then, I've just been on a path of teaching ancestral skills and learning more and trying to do what I can to spread a culture of rewilding. And in 2006, I started a blog called The Adventures of Urban Scout that was sort of based off this film character that I had created, who was... Um, living as a modern-day hunter-gatherer, and I wanted to attempt to actually live the life of this character that I had invented, and so I decided to create a blog and use that as a public platform to keep track of my adventures and such, and pretty much failed miserably within about a week of the experiment because I realized, I didn't realize actually the, the depth of rewilding and the depth of a hunter-gatherer lifestyle and what it entails. And so I realized I needed to get more people on board so that I could have a tribe because I don't believe that humans are meant to live solitary lives. And that was part of the problem. So in order to I sort of shifted gears and started writing blogs about rewilding to convince more people to rewild. And I created a forum uh, which now lives at rewild.com. Um, it's an international forum for Unfortunately, only English speakers, but it encompasses many, many countries and lots of people. And we basically, for about three years there, had a lot of discussions online. And eventually it kind of waned to the point where everybody was realizing that we needed to stop kind of talk, having these online conversations and start making things happen in the real world. So a lot of the organizers of the site shifted gears, myself included. I created Rewild Portland as a way of encouraging more people locally to get into rewilding. And um, only recently have we decided to put more emphasis back on the site and encourage people to have conversations online again about rewilding or more in depth, as uh, it seems that rewilding has been picked up by mainstream media as of late. And so to keep sort of our fundamental ideas of what rewilding is on board with that, We've been emphasizing that site a lot more and, and also continuing to do our localized projects like myself, Rewild Portland. 
So there's kind of an intersection for you between rewilding and technology and communicating about these ideas? Absolutely. Is it still kind of a struggle to walk between both of those worlds of wanting to be out there working on your skills as well as sharing more of this information online? Or do you feel that you've kind of found a good medium to work from? It depends on what you mean by struggle, I suppose. I, I don't feel like I'm struggling in any way, but I do feel the burden of living in two worlds. And I guess if that's what, you're, if that's what you mean by struggle, I think about it as kind of like a balance between the two, because as you say, you started the forum, then it began to wane as you had to kind of stop talking about it online and move towards taking more action in the real world away from the digital realm. But as you move back towards doing more online communication, having a space between those two. I see. Yeah, you know, it, it definitely feels more grounded because we have a lot more going on in the real world. Whereas before there was sort of this you know, you'd have online friends who understood what rewilding was on the forums. And there wasn't necessarily that translation to the real world. So there was this sense of longing to have that kind of community in the real world that you had online. And now, it, I mean, for me, it, it doesn't feel like that at all, because of all the work I've put into rewild Portland. There's a massive sort of, you know, stable community here of rewilders in, in town. I know it still feels that way for a lot of people out there who are on the forums who don't have that kind of community locally, who are really excited that we're putting more energy back into the forum again because they've felt sort of out of the loop in the last couple of years. And part of the idea behind the forum is to encourage people to do things in the real world. So we have instructions on there, for example, of how to run a free Skillshare, which is how uh, Rewild Portland started out. And something that we still do is um, free classes once a month open to the public. And originally, we kind of did those under the radar. Um, and now we are actually sponsored by Portland Parks and Recreation. So they're a major partner with us, which helps us to be able to promote it and be, you know, no longer under the radar, brings in a lot more people that way. Um, and so part of the part of the instructions are, you know, how to team up with local organizations like that to make it more more accessible to people. So I think that as as time goes on, you know, more and more people are going to become comfortable in using the medium as a way of building uh, something in the real world. The medium becomes more and more of a tool for connecting with other people as opposed to kind of an end on its own. Exactly. As we're here talking about technology and how you've brought all these things together, one question, I guess, to kind of get us started more with the direct idea of rewilding is how would you define rewilding and your projects? So when I first started using the term rewilding, I got the definition from a website called greenanarchy.info. It was an online info shop for green anarchy or anarcho-primitivism. And, you know, for years I didn't really have a word to describe what we were trying to do. We used all kinds of different descriptive words. And when I found the word rewilding, it really just, they had this awesome paragraph that kind of explained what it was. And we were like, hey, this is everything that we're doing, all wrapped into one nice little bundle. And so we started using that word to describe more or less returning to an ancestral lifeway or specifically the, the lifeway of immediate return hunter-gatherers, if you want to get um, anthropological. But the idea behind it wasn't that it was an end 
way of living. We weren't necessarily, you know, rewilding is a verb. It's a process. It's to return to a more wild state. So you can be anywhere on that spectrum of rewilding. Of course, you still have to have the end goal of, you know, ancestral cultures living outside of civilization. So the idea behind rewilding to me was, and has always been, walking away, and to use Daniel Quinn's expression, to walk away from civilization and create something else based on ancestral lifeways or based on immediate return hunter-gatherer lifeways. So the main fundamental to me for rewilding is about being in service to the land, not to yourself. Um, of course, you have to take care of yourself in order to do anything. So obviously, you know, personal health and hygiene and all of those things are great, fitness, etc. But the main goal of rewilding is to give back to the land, to create a life way that gives back to the land more than you're taking from it. And that to me is the fundamental aspect that Daniel Quinn presents in all of his work is that we need to somehow give back to the world. And that's something that hunter gatherers do. That's something that all animals that live, that exist in the long run do. They give back more than they take in one way or another. And that's just evolution. You have to fit in with your environment in a way that promotes more life as opposed to reducing it, if that makes any sense. A, a basic example might be, you know, that a squirrel or a jay that eats acorns every year when they bury acorns or cache them, they cache more than they're going to end up consuming. And in return, what, what they're doing is planting more trees that are food bearing for their own species and other lots of other animals. So they're actually building a forest by taking those seeds for their own use, but then also leaving them behind to grow more food for future generations. So every animal has some way or other that they're leaving a legacy or creating more abundance for themselves. And everything is interwoven in that way, unless there's a natural disaster that causes, you know, a famine or scarcity of resources. In those instances, you see more um, conflict arise. But for the most part, when those aren't continuous, then you have this sort of equilibrium of animals giving back more than they're taking. And to me, that's what rewilding is. It's about going and looking at our ancestors all over the world and at contemporary hunter-gatherers who are still living this way and being and looking at them and seeing how they're doing it so that we know what to do. Of course, underlying that, you know, before you even get to that, you kind of have to recognize that civilization itself is unsustainable and on the verge of collapse. So <laughs> I kind of jumped ahead there talking about giving back because to me, that's the fundamental aspect of rewilding. But in order to kind of understand why you would want to do that, you kind of have to understand why civilization is unsustainable, um, which is a whole other can of worms. This is one of the things that's come up for me multiple times in conversation is this idea that civilization is headed for collapse. But from my previous studies, a lot of the things that we use in order to communicate literature and art and language are all hallmarks of civilization from like a rather technical sociological standpoint. Would you get rid of those kinds of, of tools in order to move past civilization? Or are you looking at civilization from a different direction on what that term means in a rewilding context? Absolutely. And that's, that's a really good point. And part of what, you know, part of rewilding is redefining or, or reexamining concepts like civilization. Often people 
use civilization as a synonym for civil society. But in the rewilding context, we've redefined the term civilization to mean not just a society, but a specific kind of society. And if you look in the dictionary definition of civilization, one of the main points it makes is claiming that a civilization is an advanced state of political structure. And what that's kind of glossing over is that it's it's looking at the state, you know, because, uh, for example, a stateless or anarchistic society wouldn't be considered a civilization under that definition because they don't have an advanced, whatever that means, state of politics. And if you keep looking at that, what that really means is a hierarchy. And if you keep looking at that, what that means is slavery. All civilizations have been built on slavery. And when we look at an advanced or more complex social system, that's really what they're talking about. Of course, when you are the conquerors and you get to write history, it's some phrasing in there like advanced, meaning superior, gets kind of glossed over. So we can look at the definition of civilization and think of ourselves as superior to our ancestors who didn't build the culture that we have today and uh, think of ourselves as superior to them. When in fact, if we look at the degradation that civilization has caused the landscape, they're definitely superior in that they were able to maintain uh, the ecological systems that were in place for 2.5 or more million years. It, it just depends on your cultural perspective. So for me, the idea of slavery as a, as a superior society doesn't really hold up. I don't really think that slavery is superior. And I would think I would have a hard time finding anybody who would actually think that. Most of the products that we think of, uh, art, culture, those are things that hunter-gatherers have had for lots of years, too. Civilization does not have a monopoly on music or art or language. And certainly if you look at indigenous cultures from around the world, you can see that they had and still have today beautiful works of art, beautiful languages. Um, in fact, I think that the languages are more beautiful than English, for example. I'm also a fluent speaker of Chinook Wawa, which is a local native trade language here in the Northwest. And to me, the sounds and expressions, even though it's a trade language and not a mother tongue, are still more beautiful than a lot of the ideas of English. And I grew up speaking English, so I don't, I don't particularly have many other references beyond that. So yeah, we we basically redefine civilization. And from my perspective, civilization is a, an ecological disaster that happens when humans practice agriculture over a period of time and end up creating an empire and cause an ecological collapse. And you can see that with all the different civilizations that have existed over time. They become big, they have a population explosion from agriculture, and then they collapse. And our civilization has collapsed several times already, but it just keeps coming back. That's where you have Daniel Quinn's sort of concept come into play even harder there. And, and then he says that our civilization is different than all the other ones that have collapsed, because when the other civilizations collapse, the Mayans are a great example. They didn't rebuild civilization. You know, there's this idea that the Mayan civilization disappeared or you read like those Celestine prophecy books and they're all kind of like this idea that somehow... The Mayans were so spiritually advanced that they just disappeared. They, they vibrated to another level or something like that. It's really actually disgusting to even think about that for me. It's highly offensive to the Mayan cultures that are still alive today in Guatemala and uh, in Central America because it's sort of saying it's, it's that idea of erasure, um, not acknowledging that those cultures are still there. They just stopped building giant structures and they stopped 
farming as much as they had been. I'm sorry, that was a sort of a, a rant um, tangent. <laughs> um, but the, the main the main pre- premise there being that they didn't believe that civilization was the one right way for all humans to live. And that's, uh, again, where Daniel Quinn comes in and has this idea that our civilization has this idea that this is the way humans are meant to live. So we're going to keep doing it, even if it destroys the planet. And there's this secondary idea in that that says we are fundamentally flawed because we're like, well, we were born to do this and this is destroying the planet. So we're just going to do it anyway, because this is even if destroying the planet is our birthright. Well, it's our birthright. We have to do it. But rewilding is the opposite of that. It's recognizing that humans have been here for millions of years and we did so sustainably. So how did we do that? And when civilization collapses, how can we go back and use those same principles? Obviously, we can't go back to the world the way it was before civilization, but we can go back to using those same principles or go forward using those principles. You provide a context for rewilding that, to me, give me a second, let me chew on this, because you've give, just given me a lot, and I'm, I'm thinking about things like cultural appropriation and chattel slavery and how those ideas are distinct from perhaps a modern perspective on wage slave um, wage slavery and then I'm thinking about Jared Diamond's collapse and the 12 de- the 12 ways in which civilizations have collapsed due to ecological and environmental degradation but I'm trying to focus more on that idea of rewilding in that you've provided a context for it that I haven't had in previous conversations by defining what you mean by civilization and now is no longer a semantical argument about this piece of it. It becomes very clear then that civilization is not just this moment in time and what we have, but that it's an extended development to a certain point where we have reached this ability to extract so much, not only from the earth and other human beings, but also the rest of the life that's here with us, that's being subjected to our powers as human beings through invention and communication and all these other abilities that others don't have. And it's also more balanced in some ways also because it's about learning skills and using what we have. I mean, just sitting here, we're using Skype to have a conversation in order to share this information in order to be able to take more action in the world around us to help reskill people and prepare them for these principles and ideas that come from rewilding or permaculture or these other organized movements to help change the way in which we survive a downfall. Yes. Now that I've kind of rambled to make sure that I encapsulate everything, but it gives me an understanding of the importance of rewilding and how that fits into moving forward. But rather than try to put more of my spin on that, let me just take that question that's inherent in that in and ask, what to you is the importance of rewilding in the world as it exists and preparing for the world that may come? The importance of rewilding is that our ecosystems have been, I mean, to me, permaculture is like a tool for rewilders. And I I have my permaculture design certificate. I went through Toby Hemingway's uh, permaculture design course here in Portland. And one of my favorite parts of it was when he, the very first thing he does is he gives a lecture and it's called, uh, I believe it's online actually now, it's called How Permaculture Can Save the world, but not civilization. And he kind of talks about a lot of the things that 
um, Daniel Quinn and I talk about are um, the, the fundamental aspects of what is civilization and why we're not necessarily concerned with saving it. Before I had that, I kind of had this idea about permaculture that, you know, in Portland here, it's used as a as a way of sort of extending your urban garden, which I think is great. But to me, a, a full permaculture design course is going to look at the sector of empire and the sector of civilization. And if we're not looking at those things, then we're not really looking at the elephant in the room, which is saying these are the things that are actually destroying the planet. So an individual planting a permaculture garden in their urban yard is a great thing, but it's not actually going to do all that much to save the planet or stop empire from destroying the planet more specifically. And so I was really appreciative when I, when I, of Toby's work when, when I took his class and he had that essay in there. And it makes me think of the importance of permaculture in rewilding and the importance of rewilding, which is that we can shift where we are where we are today and create a more biodiverse world. And we can do it on an individual basis and we can do it on a larger cultural scale, but it's going to take cultural momentum. It's going to take a lot of people pushing to do things in that way. And maybe that's not going to happen until there's a, an utter collapse of the government or capitalism or whatever it's going to take that's going to push everybody to actually do something or be able to do something. A you know, great example of how there's some barriers to rewilding are the legalities of it. It's illegal to plant wildflowers or take wildflowers from national parks, for example. So if you're trying to live and plant, replant native gardens in Eastern Oregon, uh, you're basically going directly against the law. And there are rewilders in Eastern Oregon doing just that. And if you're a tribal member, then you have certain rights to be able to do those things. But if you're a non-tribal member and you're trying to um, assist or create those gardens again, then you're breaking the law. That's just one example. You know, it's against the law to camp in a national forest with more than 12 people. It's against the law to camp in national forests in the same spot for more than 14 days. There are certain things, there are laws that are preventing people from doing that full-scale nomadic hunter-gatherer life way. And they've been in place ever since the foundings of all these countries, specifically because they want to prevent indigenous populations from living their traditional lifestyle. Because why would you allow people to live free lives if you want to get taxes from them. I mean, that's sort of the basis of empire, right, is controlling people through taxes. And if people are living outside of a taxable area, then you have to stop that from happening because that's going to encourage other people to become free in that regard. So, you know, that's just one, one element, one sector that's that nobody really talks about of how to actually return to that life way. Now, is everybody who's doing rewilding going to be able to do that? No, but that's why I'm saying it's a process. So everybody's kind of helping out along the way, but the trajectory is the same. Does that make sense? Even if I'm like, uh, you know, we have a lot of people who, for example, are donors to Rewild Portland. They donate a lot of money, but they themselves work in like, I don't know, software design or something like that. And they're not able to change their life on a personal level, but they can use what they have to leverage what we're doing to create more opportunities for rewilding. Does that make sense? Regardless of what their background is, they can be shifting resources from one area that they don't necessarily want to support to one that they do. Exactly. So, you know, you don't necessarily have to be 
living out in the wilderness to be rewilding. You know, from my perspective, all those people that are supporting efforts to rewild are rewilders, whether they would label themselves that or not. And even people who don't label themselves as rewilders who are living out in the wilderness and replanting populations of wild foods and stuff are rewilders too, whether or not they use that term. And to me, it's just the, the trajectory of that hunter-gatherer or even horticultural life way that's probably more of a transitional period anyway, the horticultural practices that are very similar to permaculture. So to me, the importance of rewilding is to create an idea in people's heads that we can live sustainably and then to teach people how we've done that for two million years or more. So that when when civilization becomes or when the land base becomes so degraded that we can't continue civilization anymore, we'll have all the tools necessary to go back and start over or do it now. I mean, the, the cool thing about it is that you don't have to wait until civilization is collapsed. I mean, we are in a collapse. So I hate even saying when it collapses because it's not going to be an overnight process. We're in the process of collapse. We've been in the process for probably 500 years. There are certain things that have extended the collapse beyond what it would have been, such as oil and the, the, the quote unquote discovery or rather the colonization of North America extended the collapse of the empires that existed in Europe another 500 years. Oil has extended our collapse another 100 years. But the collapse is, is this long process of destruction. But where, when is the, the point of diminishing returns is kind of the point I'm looking to see is when is it going to reach its peak and start a, a major descent? But you don't have to wait for that to happen to rewild. And the best part about rewilding to me is it's not necessarily connected to this collapse. I mean, the fact that I'm rewilding has sort of nothing to do really with the collapse of civilization. Rewilding is how humans are designed to live. And so it feels great. The more things you do that are more on the path of rewilding is sort of what our biology is designed for. And so whether or not civilization was going to collapse, I would still be rewilding because to me, it's the way humans are meant to live. And so you can reap the benefits of it regardless of whether or not civilization collapses. There's just a matter of barriers that are in place that civilization puts here, and those barriers will begin to diminish the sooner civilization, or the rather the quicker the descent happens, if that makes any sense at all. No, it does. It's something, I have a book sitting here on my shelf that is about natural resource law and policy, largely exploring how the West was divided up and how different um, resource management practices came into being since the founding of the United States forward. And having studied that, it's very interesting to see how all these kinds of laws and rules come about. And I think about, you were mentioning all the things that are illegal where you are and what's happening in the national parks and national forests. And it's there's tons of state game land near where I live. But if I remember right, the only thing that you can actually go harvest from there, other than if you go hunting, when it comes to plants are berries, nuts, and mushrooms. Right. And it's, do you just go do those things now and just kind of wave your hand and, and see what happens? Or do you work on changing the laws? Or is there a place for both sides of that? Exactly. I think it's everything. I think there are, there are people who are highly skilled and knowledgeable about navigating the system. 
it's those people who have that knack. It's kind of up to them to, to make sure that those things are happening. And then there are people who don't necessarily have those skills who are not going to do that. And it's up to them to keep the life way going in their own regard as well. It's a conversation I've had the idea of reformers working within the system and revolutionaries working outside of it. Exactly. And I have to interject and just say that because I am, uh, well, rather, there's been some, <laughs> it's hard to jump into this. Uh, I'm going to shift gears a little bit. Because of, the, because of the legalities that we're talking about here, it, it needs mentioned that the First Nations people of North America are one of the biggest inspirations here to Rewild. And there's sort of this idea among a lot of people, now that Rewilding has picked up this sort of mainstream thing, it was only a matter of time really before the paleo diet community sort of discovered or Columbus Rewilding which is both good and bad because it means it's reaching more people. But the, the bad part of it is that most of those people are part of the weird population and weird. I forget exactly what the acronym is, but it's um, like Western educated, industrialized. I forget the R um, democratic societies. It's this idea of, but, but even beyond that, I think it's just wealthy non-native people who are into fitness and dieting, you know, the paleo diet is, is sort of this example that it's the design, it's the diet that our bodies are biologically designed to process. Of course, there's a million different versions of the paleo diet because you go all over the world and there's a million different kinds of cultures and they're eating all different kinds of things. So I think it ends up being more Sally Fallon's nourishing traditions type of a diet than um, what the original paleo diet was uh, in nowadays. But there's an extent that those paleo diet people, they get to, there's like, oh, okay, well, there's a diet here. I get that this diet is how we're supposed to live. And then they kind of branch out into other things. Oh, well, this is how we are meant to exercise, or this is our level of fitness. What about our sleep regulations? What about these things, these things, these things? And eventually they realize that humans have been domesticated. And the opposite of domestication is wild. And so then they come to rewilding because they're like, oh, if we're domesticated and that's the problem, then how do we rewild? So now you have this, this group of people that are rewilding who are unfamiliar with maybe the more fundamental aspects of the terminology like civilization and agriculture and the things that we've discussed already. And for them, rewilding, they didn't come to rewilding as a fundamental for being in service to the land and learning how to give back to the land. They've come to rewilding from this perspective of being healthier as an individual. So it's it's a more narcissistic, individualized perception of rewilding, which is fine in the sense that that's definitely part of rewilding. All those things are part of rewilding. But if you're not coming to it from looking at it as a way of transitioning to a culture that is sustainable, then it's sort of problematic, especially if it's this individualist pursuit, because you're not necessarily then concerned with culture. You're not concerned with community. And if you're not concerned with those things, then you're not concerned with insulting First Nations peoples from culturally appropriating them, for example. Whereas the rewilding that I'm familiar with, that is about being in service to the land, is very much in line with decolonization and respect for indigenous cultures and helping them get land back so they can continue to practice their traditional life ways and keep them alive instead of pretending that they don't exist anymore. And that's unfortunately something that I've been seeing now happening with 
rewilding as it's hitting the mainstream is that, you know, you've got like Huffington Post interviewing people who are calling themselves rewilding pioneers, but in the end are just uh, using it as a, as a synonym for the paleo lifestyle. And it's unfortunate because then what's happening is native allies are seeing rewilding as this culturally appropriative movement that's sort of uh, just for white people. And it's upsetting to me because as a, as a cultural creator and, and what we're doing here in Portland is definitely white centric because that's what I've known. And, you know, obviously our website is English speaking, but we've been doing a lot of work to create more community and more diversity within rewilding. And so when we're talking about legalities and, you know, working within the system, we're also talking about working with first nations communities because you have people who are rewilding who are respectful of native traditions and are working with native cultures and or at, at the very least giving them um, credit for the things that we've learned about how to live here as hunter gatherers or how to live here as horticulturalists in north america as non-native people and then you have you know newbie rewilders who are writing books on edible plants of their region without necessarily giving any credit whatsoever to the native populations and without writing into those books how to give back. And to me, that's the fundamental aspect of rewilding is how to give back. And there's a great book out right now called Pacific Northwest Foraging, and it's by Douglas Dewar. And he's a Portland professor at Portland State University. And he also co-wrote a book called Keeping It Living, which is uh, anthropological study of horticultural practices of the Northwest. So his current book, Pacific Northwest Foraging, is about foraging in the Northwest, which is, you know, the biggest craze now, foraging. But each plant, it doesn't just say how to eat the plant. It says how to give back. Every plant section has a future harvest paragraph or more that explains what you can do to keep that plant population alive. And all of that information came from tribes of the Northwest Coast that he's worked with for decades and that he studied with elders for decades who gave him that information and asked him to publish the book and asked him to incorporate those aspects of it. So to me, you know, the idea of rewilding is giving back. And if you're only talking about foraging and you're not talking about the aspects of foraging that include returning that population of plants or tending the wild, then you're you're still just taking from the wild. You're still just part of this culture of extraction. And so rewilding means to return to a hunter-gatherer life way, but that doesn't mean that you're just out there extracting resources. It means that you understand how to give back to the land more than you're taking as well. And if we're doing that here as non-natives, then it's imperative that we work with native populations out there to restore their habitats, you know, that they've been foraging for thousands of years and that to get their land restored to them as well so that they can continue those traditions, because those are the people that are teaching us how to do that here. That's something that has to be said anytime we talk about rewilding in North America. Now, that's not necessarily the case in um, Europe, because most of the population there is not native anymore, or, or is native, but not living a hunter-gatherer lifestyle. We destroyed that there probably a thousand years ago, where the Romans destroyed a lot of the horticultural villages there a thousand years ago, so or more than that now. But um, and before that, you know, the hunter-gatherers were wiped out by agriculturalists 7,000 years ago. But we still have anthropological data that 
can tell us how to live those life ways. And in particular, using permaculture practices is a great way to transition to those horticultural practices. And I think permaculture also should be acknowledging the native people that are here and working with them to to keep their cultures going as well. And that's something that is emerging. I've had contact with several permaculture practitioners who are involved in that kind of work that I've heard from in the Western states. Yeah. So knowing that those folks are out there does give me some hope. And there are people who are experienced in a variety of skill sets who are doing that kind of, those kinds of practices. Yeah. I imagine that everything that we've covered today will have to have a second conversation because we're at about the point in this one where we're out of time. So I would like to ask you if you have any final thoughts for the listener from this interview. You know, what we didn't really get into was the, the practices of agriculture that are unsustainable, that kind of create a civilization. But that may be just something that you've already talked about enough and that people who have a who are into permaculture kind of already understand. It's something that Toby's work is getting out there. But a lot of the conversation is still about how do I plant a garden? Right. And it's one of the reasons why I've been doing this rather deep exploration of foraging and rewilding recently is because of needing to break even further out of that garden space. It was something, there were three people who I interviewed close to one another, uh, Dave Jackie, Larry Santoyo, and, and Mark Lakeman. I talked to all three of them within like a month, and they were all talking about how we need to move beyond the garden, that the garden is a metaphor, that because the PDC uses the garden space as the lexicon that we speak with, that's where a lot of the focus becomes. But one of the big things that drew me to permaculture was about community. And all my years as a Boy Scout, where we were out there learning edible plants, many of them incorrectly, and how to take care of the world around us, leaving no trace. How can you camp lightly? How can you spend a week somewhere and do it safely? And needing to take the conversation of permaculture further and further away from agriculture, that it's not just sustainable farming practices, it's getting away from agriculture completely and having what Chuck Marsh called a neo-horticultural revival. Yes. I mean, I, to me, uh, that's a, that's a, that would be a synonym for rewilding, you know? I mean, is that the, the immediate return hunter-gatherers, I don't know. The, the, more, the more I look at immediate return hunter-gatherers, which the idea, I don't know if you're familiar with the term, there's two different kinds of hunter-gatherers. There's immediate return and delayed return. Immediate return hunter-gatherers go out, forage for food, or gather it rather, bring it back to a central location, process it and eat it. Delayed return has uh, some storage capabilities and that changes things quite a bit. If they're storing food, there's just, it, it, it lends itself more towards sedentism, I guess, and more towards horticulture. If there's a spectrum, you know, between immediate return and horticulture, in, uh, delayed return is sort of in, in the middle there. This is it's been a while since I've looked at this, but the more I study hunter-gatherers, the more it's like they're all using horticultural practices. Some of them are more sedentary than others, but the idea originally anthropologically, and I think what most people think of as hunter-gatherers, is that they lived wandering the landscape, just kind of eating things here and there and leaving no trace. But the reality is hunter-gatherers leave a gigantic trace on the landscape. 
and the trace is one that promotes more biodiversity and biomass. And so the idea of the hunter-gatherer sort of not tending the wild or not altering the landscape is really not true. I mean, even if you look at, and a great example, again, if we're going to go back and talk about how animals impact the land more is, let's look at a bear. So me and a friend were out in the forest and we were, it was a, a sort of a valley. It's this beautiful, uh, it's a beautiful resort, actually, not resort. It's a, a retreat center called Scalitude. It's up in Washington. They have a, a in Twisp, Washington, they have a, a great ancestral skills gathering there once a year called Saskatoon Circle. And we lived there for three months doing this ancestral skills project. And he was always looking up on the ridge and we could see this, um, this big tree that stood out alone. But all around the tree were these huckleberries. And it was the only spot where there were just huckleberries, huckleberries everywhere around this tree. And he was like, man, it's the weirdest thing. Can you see up there? There's that tree. And he's like, I'm going to go look at that tree because he's a, a professional tracker. And he goes up there and he, he's looking at the tree and he realizes it's a bear marking tree where the bears come up and they scratch it, leave their scent, and they poop all around this tree. And it took us a minute to realize that that tree and those berries, are, those, that, that berry patch was actually that bear's permaculture garden in a sense, because it was frequently pooping in this spot and it created a huckleberry garden. And if you're thinking about that, like, Think about hunter-gatherers, okay? What do we eat? Where do we poop? That's the most fundamental thing of any animal. And so even a hunter-gatherer, an immediate return hunter-gatherer, is going out and foraging. They're living there. They're living on nomadic circuits. They're living on gardens that connect to gardens. They're not wandering aimlessly. They know the landscape. They've been working those same circuits for thousands of years and still are today where they haven't been destroyed or outlawed from going to those places. And... If you think about that, then those hunter-gatherers are, are using land management principles because you know that they're aware of where they're going to the bathroom. You know, they're aware of the landscape effect that they're having. So they're not leaving no trace. They're leaving a trace. It's just one that's invisible to agriculturalists. And that's part of the problem is, and part of the, um, the more difficult work of anthropologists today is in acknowledging that hunter-gatherers were manipulating the land. And, you know, one of the claims that settlers used is that the hunter-gatherers were not using the land the way, you know, the God had, that God had intended, which was to till the soil. Because for their perspective, the only kind of land management or the one right way that humans were meant to live is to till the soil. So they were ignoring the fact that these hunter-gatherers were setting fire to the valleys and not saying that that was land management. In fact, then they started fire suppression. And what happened when they suppressed fires here in the Willamette Valley is that you have Douglas fir is actually an invasive species in the Willamette Valley, and it outcompeted with the oak savanna that was here. And that oak savanna was here for thousands of years because it was grown intended by Native American populations, specifically the Kalapuya, who uh, are the language, the Kalapuya language group that is the Willamette Valley here. And so part of that you know, part of, I think, why you've got newbie rewilders who think that rewilding or hunter-gatherers just go out and take from the land is because that's still what people think on a larger mainstream. That's how hunter-gatherers lived. They don't understand that when you live in a place for thousands of years, you know where to go to the bathroom. You know how to harvest a plant that's going to make it come back uh, stronger the following year. You know all of the ins and outs of the sustainable land management practices that are going to quote unquote, keep it living. And 
that again comes back to respecting the cultures that are here and trying to work with them because they still have that stuff going on. And there's a lot of people who want to claim that they don't or think they don't because that's, again, another mainstream idea is that Native American cultures are uh, extinguished or gone or just poor or living on reservations or something like that. And although that is sadly true for a lot of people, it's not overall a reality. Overall, the reality is there is still a lot of that culture and information alive and we need to do our part to help them keep it alive because if we want to see a future where we're living in that kind of life way then it's time to turn it around and you know it wasn't necessarily my ancestors who were here who destroyed those populations of native people and but i today benefit from that destruction as a white male living in america i receive all the privileges that those people brought forward that, you know, the ancestors of civilization brought forward when they destroyed Native or attempted to destroy Native Americans here. And so it's my duty to actually do what I can to help them. And that means asking them what they want help with, but also to rewild for myself involves learning those principles, if that makes any sense. So I'm sorry, I know that's getting off on a whole nother thing. It's quite all right. I We'll have to have another conversation once I finish the next couple of interviews on this series of foraging, and I'll have you back. But thank you, Peter, for everywhere that you've taken me today. I didn't imagine that we would be talking about politics and empire when we started this conversation. I'm glad that we went the places that we did. So thank you for joining me today. Yeah, thank you. And that was Peter Michael Bauer of Rewild Portland. You can find out more about him and his current work at rewildportland.com. I would like to have Peter back on the show to continue this conversation and wrap up some thoughts that we touched on, but did not have the space to expand on during this first conversation. If you have questions for him after listening to this show, let me know, and I will include them in the follow-up we will have in a few months. Also, make sure to check out the show notes, as there are a number of resources available that were mentioned during this interview. I walk away from this conversation feeling that the act of practicing permaculture is the first step, the beginning, of a life that is less civilized and a lot more wild. The more I have conversations with people like Peter or Dan DeLion or Ben Weiss and Wilson Alvarez or read the works of authors like Derek Jensen, the less and less I can sit back and be mild behind this microphone. I don't talk about my personal perspective much, except for what comes through in the stories that I tell to guests in order to provide a particular context as we continue the conversation. But these guests and their ideas spark a loud and boisterous side of myself. As I grow tired and weary of the destruction and damage that is happening all around us, and want to see all of us pick up our tools and find our own salvation from this damaging culture that pushes us away from one another by telling us who to fear, why we can't trust our neighbor, and that we must always be suspicious. We're told to question science because it might tell us something we don't like or can't bring ourselves to accept because it conflicts with some preconceived worldview. That because one of you is a Republican and one is a Democrat, that those political leanings are so big that you can't get along and realize that one's guns and the other's gays aren't our problems, but are used as issues that drive a wedge between us and push us apart so that those in power can stay there and dictate to us what is best while serving their own self-interest that we are anesthetized with a news cycle of entertainment and shocking headlines, 
we are in the middle of ecological and potentially social collapse. And we're told to spend our time worried about who's going to win some televised contest. Or that a terrorist group thousands of miles away is going to come onto this soil and ruin our way of life when every day we listen to people who are already ruining it for us. Those same people who tell us to be afraid and that we can't change what's happening anyway, so should go back to our comfortable homes and turn up the heat if the winter's a little cold, or install a new air conditioner if the summer seems hotter than normal, and ignore the droughts in California because the Northeast got a record snowfall this year. I'm tired. I'm tired of living in fear and listening to messages of scarcity. I'm tired of holding on to hope like it will make a difference, because it won't. Action. Action will make a difference. And I love this world and each and every one of you so much that I can't sit idly by and let this continue. I want to see a place where we can all come together and live the best lives we can in the world we want to see, even if we might disagree a little over what it might look like, but to do it in a way that takes care of the earth so we can have a home to live on indefinitely for ourselves and future generations. Those grandchildren and great-grandchildren that Matt Winters mentions in The Gift, that we can take care of ourselves and grow a little food to make sure we can eat and not go hungry, and to grow a little extra to feed our neighbor, regardless of what their religion, race, or creed might be, because they're our friends and they're our fellow human beings that we can live and love and work together and give a damn about the difference we can make and tune out the messages that say that we're not enough, we are not good enough, that we can't save the salmon or reverse climate change, and that we should continue to trust in those who lie to us every day so that they can remain in power when we, each and every one of us, is powerful and capable of bringing about incredible change. Rewild yourself. Practice permaculture and be free. As you do know that whatever road you are on, I'm here. I'm not going anywhere. Things might change with the podcast, I don't know yet, but whatever happens, I will continue to make myself available to anyone and everyone who reaches out to me. Call 717-827-6266 or email show at permaculturepodcast.com. If you have some surplus and you can throw a little something my way, I'd appreciate it because this podcast is all that I do for a living right now. Learn more at thepermaculturepodcast.com slash support or at patreon.com slash permaculturepodcast. And if you haven't already, join the Traveling Permaculture Library Project by emailing your name and address to Matt Winters, who is the new librarian for the project. You can reach him at librarian at thepermaculturepodcast.com. By doing so, you'll receive a random book related to permaculture, the natural world, or the environment. All I ask is that once you receive a book and read it, email Matt back so that you can get the address of the next person to pass it along to. Each book includes a sticker in the front cover with more information to make this process easier. I've got some more books that I'll be shipping off to Matt to add to the library soon, which include Greg Marley's Chanterelle Dreams, Amanita Nightmares, Betty Thompson and Levin's Working With Your Woodland, Richard Maybe's Weeds, and Stephen Barstow's Around the World in 80 Plants. Until the next time, spend each day creating a better world, the world you want to live in, by taking care of Earth, yourself, and each other.